Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we chat about professional burnout and how to avoid it with Garrett Williams, who's doing a PhD in atomic physics at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Garrett has contributed an essay about burnout to our upcoming celebration of Black in Physics Week. Also on hand is the astrophysicist Zach Meisel of Ohio University, who sheds light on the nuclear fusion that drives the sun and other stars. And he looks forward to new experiments that will expand our knowledge of this stellar burning. But first, winning the Nobel Prize in Physics is a life-changing experience for most laureates. As Physics World's Laura Hiscott finds out in this conversation with a laser physicist who answered that early morning call from Stockholm in 2018. I'm joined down the line from Waterloo, Canada, by Donna Strickland, who won the 2018 Nobel Prize for Physics for her work developing the technique of chirped pulse amplification of laser pulses, which has many applications across industry and medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Donna. Thank you. Nice to be here. So it's been three years since you won the Nobel Prize. Um, So I was wondering... How has your working life changed since then? And how much time do you get to spend on the kind of research that you were doing before you won the prize? Well, of course, half that time has been COVID. So that also changed everything radically. Um, But if you talk about the 18 months before COVID, of course, it was quite different. I pretty much traveled nonstop. And, you know, I thought I was trying to say no, but somehow things kept coming in. And so quite different. It was quite hard to uh, stay doing research. I think it's just such a life-changing experience that it's hard to wrap your head around how to handle it. Of course, yeah. And I suppose that leads me on to my next question, which is, I was wondering what new opportunities have opened up for you as a result of winning the prize? And um, if there's something you would say is the most rewarding thing that you've done that you might not have had the opportunity to do otherwise? Well, yes, like obviously I've seen uh, quite a bit of the world now because of this. And so and I love to travel. I've always loved to travel. And and people do treat you so much nicer when you're the Nobel Prize winner. And so they actually um, even get private tours of places for you. So oh, wow. the travel <laughs> has been wonderful for me. You know, which things have been the most rewarding, I find a little bit hard to answer. And I, I wouldn't want anybody because so many people have invited me to so many places. But there there are some, I mean... Uh, there is an event called Starmus, which it's Brian May from Queen that started it with his colleague, because he is also an astrophysicist, Garrick Israeli. And it, it is about um, science outreach and science literacy. And I, and I am a big proponent of that. I think during COVID now, we've seen it more than ever, um, how it's important to get your word out about that. But also, you know, you get to meet people like Brian May and, and also the Apollo astronauts. And, and what, if, you know, that was really quite exciting for me. Um, So I would say, you know, that was something that happened and I would not have had that opportunity um, to go to an event like that. You know, there's also the Linda Nobel event where they gathered Nobel Prize winners with the young uh, students and postdocs. And and that's quite a a special um, week as well. Yeah, that, that all sounds really, really exciting. 
One thing that I heard was that um, earlier this year, you were appointed to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. And so I was interested in um, what made you accept that invitation and what you hope to do in that role. Well, first of all, it's it's an honor to be picked of one of 70 scientists in the whole world. So I, I don't know that I would want to turn that kind of thing down. I mean, just the, the opportunity to interact with those other uh, 69 scientists. It's one of those things, you know, how am I in this club? But again, going back to my point, I think COVID has really driven home that we do need religion and science to work together. We certainly can't have them fighting. You know, and some religions seem to want to fight science. And so the Roman Catholic Church right now is saying, no, we don't want to fight science. We want to work hand in hand with science. And I think that's so important. And so I think um, we have to have that. We have to have our religious leaders telling their um, constituents that, you know, science is important. You know, Um, I I find it sad that some religions can't get wrap their head around that if, if there's a God, that maybe he's speaking through the scientists and the doctors and everything to help the world. And that's how God works. I haven't figured out why some religions are so resistant to that idea. But we do need them because we need, uh, certainly during this COVID thing, we need, we need the whole world to understand that scientists are there to help. Yeah, definitely. That, that cooperation is really, really important. Um, I was interested to know as well um, if there are any new research directions that you hope to go into that might not have been possible before you won the prize? I don't know so much about new research directions. I'm still working on the same ones I was before, but um, the one thing I had started just before, I probably started in 2017, was this idea of um, a global environmental measurement and monitoring. And that's work I'm doing with Optica, the organization that I was uh, president of back in uh, 2013. It was called OSA then, now it's called Optica. But um, I think having won the Nobel Prize, uh, it really got the attention of the Canadian government. And so it's much easier to push this idea forward that we will, we really just want to bring technology people together with environmental scientists to help push the measurement and monitoring capabilities around the world. And so I'm sort of trying to lead the push here in Canada, but we are hoping that it goes right around the globe um, just to help the environment. So whether my, you know, I do mid-infrared research. And so maybe my group could start thinking about how to do something for that. We'll see if that works out. But it's it's mostly more just me wanting to um, help with that cause of, of being photonics researchers together with environmental science. Yeah, that, that sounds like an amazing way to use your platform, definitely. To read more about the Nobel Prize for Physics and what other Nobel laureates have done after their prize winning work, check out our articles on the Physics World website. Look out for headlines that start with Life Beyond the Nobel. Thanks for being on the podcast, Donna. Thank you for having me. Next up is Physics World's Margaret Harris with a preview of a project that we're working on for next week. In October 2020, Physics World participated in the first ever Black in Physics Week, an event dedicated to celebrating black physicists and revealing a more complete picture of what a physicist looks like. This year's Black in Physics Week runs from the 24th of October through to the 30th, and we're delighted to be taking part again. Throughout the week, we'll be publishing essays written by outstanding black physicists at different stages of their career, all on the theme of burnout and how to avoid it. And to give you a little preview of that, I'm pleased to have one of the essayists here with me in the virtual studio. 
He is Garrett Williams, and he's a PhD student in atomic physics at the University of Illinois. Hi, Garrett. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Margaret. Good to be here. So we'll get on to burnouts and Black and Physics Week in a moment. But to start with, Garrett, maybe you could just tell us about how you got interested in physics. Sure. Um, when I was in undergrad, I was actually a chemistry major uh, with intentions of being a doctor. And I took organic chemistry during my freshman year, and it was fascinating just to get to experience how electrons moved and how uh, molecules could break and form bonds to form new things. And But the thing that chemistry really didn't uh, connect with me with is the details, the mathematical details and the, the more thorough descriptions of how these things happened. And so I was trying to look deeper into um, my chemistry field and try and see when, if we'd get to the point where we actually talk about those things. Um, and so I was looking for YouTube videos to get these details and I saw for the first time a description of wave functions and um, molecular bonds as, as waves and orbiting electrons. And that was a description that really resonated with me and how I wanted to understand the world. And I looked at the description on the video and it actually said physics. And I was like, wow, looks like I'm in the wrong major. And so I actually, then I dropped my genetics class and I started uh, looking into physics class. And so I took modern physics and I loved it and um, been going into physics ever since, kept my chemistry major for the description as well. And um, I got to grad school and um, I wanted to see where the overlap between chemistry and physics was, my two disciplines that I really liked. And um, I got into AMO physics, and it seems to be the perfect field. So, yeah, you know, your research is in atomic, molecular, and optical physics, AMO physics. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're working on? Absolutely. So the idea behind where AMO physics is now for the past couple of decades, actually, a lot of new techniques have been developing and um, observing the quantum behavior of, of smaller things, of nanoscale and uh, materials like op objects, like atoms and molecules, and just getting to observe how they behave in the quantum regime. And one way of doing that is by making them very, very cold. When things are very small and very cold, they tend to behave a lot more like pure quantum objects. And so what we do in our field is we use lasers to slow them down to very, very low speeds. And when things get slower, they get colder. And when things get cold, they sort of uh, become less localized and they start to diffuse outwardly in a, a very wave-like way. Um, and we can describe the quantum mechanical behavior of these objects by um, monitoring their wave-like behavior. And so what I do is... I work in a cold atom physics lab where we use lasers and electronics to uh, cool atoms down, confine them, and observe their quantum behavior to uh, engineer platforms for information systems and quantum storage and things like this. So I think you have, um, you're using these, these methods to cool down atoms to create sort of arrays of ultra-cold molecules. Um, mm -hmm. and that these are possibly used as qubits in sort of quantum computing? Yeah, so one of the big platforms within our field is this idea of quantum computing um, by, engineering these, uh, by engineering these systems that behave as quantum objects, we can make them behave like isolated qubits and we can entangle them into these nice systems and make them sort of 
um, highly controllable and tunable ways of uh, storing energy in a way that's not uh, like the conventional computer. And then the power of quantum computing really comes from its extent of how it's able to behave as a multi-space system rather than just an on and off switch like you would observe from maybe a classical computing bit. Quantum computers have the ability to um, exist in multiple spaces, anywhere in between the off and off states. And this gives us the versatility we need to increase our information storage capacity or increase our accessibility and studying these larger dynamical systems. And so that's kind of the motivation for pursuing quantum computing and my research field. You're obviously really, really keen on this field, but you have experienced some, some moments when, you know, kind of burnout hits and it became really difficult for you to continue. Let's talk about that. You have a really great definition of what burnout is. Maybe we could start there. Right. So I guess the way I typically think about burnout is it's a crippling experience where your passions start to turn into sources of stress. So you can be really motivated about something and really into it. And then for some reason, you just start to decline in your, in your desire to pursue it. And that can be from multiple sources. One source of burnout for me was as someone new to the field, I only entered the field of AMO physics upon entering grad school. And so there was a lot of um, a lot of training and barriers in my way in getting in this field. It's a, it's a difficult field, like any field of physics, it's hard. <laughs> so it took a lot of work to get to the point where I was able to contribute and understand my research field. And um, I experienced that for the very first time during a conference for AMO physics where I was one of the only black physicists there and often the only black physicist in the entire room. And just being in that sort of environment where a lot of really difficult concepts were being talked about very casually and um, not really finding my place in that area and that arena and this new environment, it was very, it was very stressful for me. And so I started to question my place in the field, my place in physics, um, and not having someone to look up to or look towards and envision myself in the field um, really was kind of damaging for me. And so one of the ways I tried to deal with that is I started to ground myself in things that I knew I was good at and things that I had confidence that I could have some prowess in while I was developing the field or the skills I would need to pursue the field. And one thing that I like to do is journal and so I try and keep my um, I try and keep my confidence of the field by um, sort of journaling my way through physics, talking about uh, talking myself through a lot of difficult concepts in a way that I know I understand them, and just trying to identify what I can do to um, battle back this feeling of not belonging. So that's a really sort of internal way of combating burnout. What are some of the, like, you mm -hmm. know, I guess you sometimes that's, that may not be enough in, in some circumstances. How do you sort of like reach out to other people to help them, to help them help you to, to fight back your burnout? Yeah, absolutely. One of the other strategies that I typically tether myself to for battling back burnout is through my outreach efforts. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of, um, mentoring and I didn't have anyone on one direct mentoring when I was an undergrad. And so that absence kind of motivates me to be that for other people and ensure that people have every opportunity to pursue what they like. And physics is one of the fields where 
I feel like you have to you have to really try it in order to identify whether or not you like it or not. And a lot of people don't really have that opportunity or a lot of people don't have the same opportunities. And so creating spaces in which that's possible is one of the ways in which I battle back my own burnout is by giving that experience to other people. You know, you've, you've talked a little bit about one source of, of, of burnout that's specific to being, you know, a black physicist, the, the only one in the room syndrome. What are some you know, things that you've, you've done to try to combat that specifically? If, if you're going to fix a problem about um, there not being enough people um, in the field, then one of the ways to do that is to try and garner more people in the field. So um, I try really hard to devote myself to my outreach efforts and um, I just try to engage people in physics outside of the realm that people usually associate with it um, in in the sense of a class. So something that um, is somewhat of a barrier to physics is that people don't tend to see it as more than just a classroom discipline when they don't have experience with the field largely. Um, So one of the things that I did during undergrad was I started this program in the local high school district to introduce students to physics as a field rather than just a class in which you would receive a grade. Um, Because physics is so much larger than that. It's a collaboration. It's a a fellowship, a group of people who are just trying to understand the world in a robust way, um, in a way that suits them. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't get to experience outside of their maybe freshman year of physics in high school. Um, So one of the things we tried to do was give them research presentations and demonstrations and um, one-on-one tutorings and just trying to develop genuine one-on-one relationships with them so they can kind of get that level of experience, kind of similar to a mentor-mentee relationship that you would see in like a research space. And that's that's one of the things that I think many people, especially underrepresented minorities, miss out about the field of physics is they don't get to see these, they don't get to see that it is a very human field and that there is a space for them. And instead of trying to carve their way through getting the correct answers and checking off a, a grade on a report card, just getting to see that it is a field in which people thrive, people like who look like them thrive. I think I would just like to say, or kind of dispel the belief that physics is something that only certain people can do. I think that physics is just universally hard. I think that it's rewarding because it's hard. Not being scared off by the difficulty is, uh, I think, one of the barriers that people might experience. And so I kind of just want to humanize it in a sense and say that I find it hard all the time, but it's because it's hard that that's one of the ways in which I can enjoy it. That's really important. You know, thank you for touching that on that. We've talked about your personal strategies and things that you've done to either address your burnout personally or to reach out to other people to both, you know, address your own burnout by sort of reawakening your enthusiasm for the field. But, you know, preventing burnout is going to be definitely going to be better than dealing with it afterwards. So, you know, what are some changes that you'd like to see other people make in the physics community that would make it, you know, a a healthier and less burnout inducing kind of place to be. Right. Um, So I think that one of these sources of burnout is um, it definitely is a function of the environment that you place yourself in. Um, So if you're in an environment that 
that cultivates your love of physics and gives you the opportunity to explore your interests and um, lifts you up in a way that's meaningful, I think that that's one of the best things that you can do is find a, find a space and find an environment in which you can thrive. And that's not easy to do because it's, it, it's often that we find ourselves in places where we imagined ourselves being happy and maybe figured out that it wasn't the best spot for us. Um, and so one of the things that I would encourage other people to do is be flexible about what what their interests are, what makes them happy, and don't be afraid to learn more about yourself and take the time to ask yourself what it is you really want and what it actually looks like for you to be happy. I think that's one of the best things that you can do is this introspective view on who you are and how you learn and how you thrive and valuing what's important to you is one of the best things that I think can uh, you can do to prevent burnout. Garrett Williams, thank you so much for speaking to us. Absolutely. And you'll be able to read Garrett's essay and, and those of four other outstanding black physicists next week as part of Physics World's Black and Physics Week coverage. The Sun and other stars are huge fusion reactors in which hydrogen nuclei fuse together to create helium and other light elements while releasing vast amounts of energy. Although physicists have been studying this stellar burning for a hundred years, there is still much to be learned about what goes on in the interior of stars. I'm joined down the line from Ohio University in the U.S. by Zach Meisel to chat about current research into stellar fusion and what the community has planned for the future. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for having me. Can we start with a, a simple description of stellar burning? What goes on inside a star like the sun? Right. So as you mentioned, stars are fusion reactors, and most of this nuclear fusion is going on at the core or around the core. What you basically have is at the center of the star, hydrogen is converted to helium by various nuclear reactions. That helium is burned into carbon and oxygen. And if your star starts out uh, with the mass that's more than 10 times the mass of the sun, you can continue on to burn heavier elements. So you can burn carbon, neon, oxygen, silicon, and eventually you wind up with a core that's mostly elements around iron. And besides the core burning, you also then have shells of these elements of burning. So outside the iron core, silicon, and then oxygen, and then neon, carbon, and so on. And you get this sort of onion-like structure of the star. So those are the basics, Zach. What, what are you looking into at the moment? What are some of the current outstanding questions in stellar astrophysics? Right. There are a number of outstanding questions. I'll just name a few to not take up too much time. So one really interesting one is this thing called the upper mass gap for black holes. So when you look at the black hole mass distribution, you find at some uh, mass number that's up for debate, but let's say around 100 solar masses, you don't have any black holes that are made at that mass. And that star, you know, we believe self-destructs as a pair instability supernova. And it turns out where this mass gap happens is related to this reaction known as carbon-12 alpha gamma. So the rate at which carbon and helium fuse to make oxygen. Another uh, really interesting one is the carbon-carbon reaction. So fusing carbon together this winds up influencing uh, element formation, nucleosynthesis, 
in type 1a supernovae. So these are exploding white dwarf stars. And this reaction winds up giving us clues as to whether these supernovae are two white dwarfs merging and exploding or one white dwarf. And we need to understand that reaction better. And there are many reactions that wind up limiting our diagnostic capabilities that, that we can, how we can make use of observable properties of stars. So for instance, the solar neutrino spectrum, how well we can use that to learn about the core of the sun depends on how well we understand the nuclear reactions. So a number of questions like that. So Zach, you're an astrophysicist, but you study nuclear reactions in the lab. What sort of experiments do you do and what do they tell you about the insides of stars? Yeah, we do a, a number of different types of experiments. They, they fall into two main categories. We'd have direct measurements and indirect. The idea behind direct is to try to measure the reaction at the energy that it happens in a star or in a stellar explosion. So you have these two species, you make a target out of one, a beam out of the other, collide them together and measure what comes out and how often that happens. For many cases, we can't directly do that. So instead we do indirect measurements and that basically just means measuring the important nuclear properties that you need to know in order to calculate an astrophysical reaction rate. And these can be mass measurements or studying the structure of a nucleus or any number of things, really. And what can we learn about stellar burning from observing stars? For example, studying neutrinos emitted from the sun. Right. So what we can learn is mostly the, the structure of the star, the stellar physics, and then also how the elements in the universe were made. So for instance, solar neutrinos, these are really the best diagnostic we have of what the, the temperature and density conditions are at the center of the sun. And this is what our whole stellar modeling is based on, that we can predict these things. So solar neutrinos are very valuable for that. Another primary observable would be atomic spectra from the envelopes of stars. And we can look at these uh, we can use these spectra to get elemental abundance patterns, and that then tells us about how the elements in the universe were made. So we can kind of try to figure out from looking at that pattern, how many supernovae did we have and what did they make? How many neutron star mergers did we have? What did they make? Those kinds of things. And so what, what's next in terms of new nuclear facilities and new observatories for studying nuclear processes in stars? What, what new facilities are you most excited about? Right, there are a number. So in, in nuclear physics, uh, I'll just give some examples of things I'm excited about. So underground laboratories are very important for studying stellar burning because you want to get away from the background from cosmic rays uh, coming from, from space. And so at uh, Gran Sasso Labs in Italy, there's this Luna facility. They're the original underground stellar laboratory. They're upgrading their accelerator to be Luna MV they can expand the energy range that they can measure. In China, there's a lab known as Juna, and they're going to be the highest intensity accelerator uh, underground. And in the United States, there's a lab called Caspar that's out in South Dakota, about a mile underground, and that's a new one just beginning to produce first science. There are some others that are quite interesting too in terms of facilities. So the facility for rare isotope beams at Michigan State University is uh, going to start producing first science this next year. And that's going to allow us to produce radioactive ion beams that we've, that we've never been able to make before to study explosive burning. And if I can put a plug in for my own lab, the Edwards Accelerator Lab at Ohio University is an older lab, but there's always interesting new things being developed in terms of new detectors. And that's for nuclear physics. Observatories 
For instance, one I'm most excited about is the Vera Rubin Observatory. They're going to observe about one-fifth of the visible sky every few nights. And this is going to open up a window into a whole new class of transient objects in the night sky. One last thing I guess I'd like to plug in terms of facilities is really virtual infrastructure. So we have this International Research Network for Nuclear Astrophysics, IRENA, and we're now beginning to link together nuclear astrophysicists all over the world, I would say more efficiently than we had before. And that's just going to open up people power, right, in order to uh, approach these stellar burning questions. Well, that's really interesting, Zach. Um, now, you and your colleagues have written a white paper called The Status and Future of Direct Reaction Measurements for Stellar Burning, and that's been accepted for publication in the Journal of Physics G, Nuclear and Particle Physics. It's currently available as an accepted manuscript on the IOP Science website. Thanks for being on the podcast, Zach. Thank you, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Donna Strickland, Garrett Williams, Zach Meisel, Margaret Harris, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. Sadly, this marks the last podcast produced by Callum Jelf, who is leaving Physics World Weekly after three years behind the mixing desk. Thanks, Callum, for a job well done. And I will be taking a short break from the podcast while my colleague James Dacey presents two episodes that explore some of the issues that will be discussed at the upcoming 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, or COP26, which is being held in Glasgow. Tune in next week for the first of those episodes. Physics World.